I'm going to go to James chapter 2 today. It'll take me just a bit to get there. Um, James is dealing with the conflict of rich and poor. And this happens throughout this book. But in the second chapter, um, quite a bit more than, say, any other portion. And I want to look at that, but I want to kind of establish a base first. Do you believe that God loves you as much as someone else, even though he treats you differently than he does them? It's a crucial question. When you're growing up in a family and you're going, you didn't treat them like you treated me, that's not fair. You know, and every family has a lawyer, right? Usually a second child. Um, it just... <laughs> don't look at me that way. <laughs> File a suit. I don't care. No, <laughs> um, no it, it is one of those tensions in family life. And then about the time you start parenting, you're going... These kids are different, and each one responds differently. You'll find out that one may be very voice responsive, or even a look will be enough to just unravel them, and the next one will just stand there and glare at you. And you're going, i got to find a different system for this one. And then the next one comes along, and it's different yet. And you, become to, you come to terms with that as a parent. You're going, okay, I, I, I truly do love each one deeply. Hopefully the same. But it begins to dawn on you that in the Lord, even though he loves us all, he, he loves variety and he's created that. And so... He's made each one of us different, and he treats us differently, even though he loves us the same. Um, I want to, um, let's see, I want to take this just a, a step further. Most of us growing up, um, we would look at others and go, I wish I was a little taller. I wish I, I wish I was a little di- built a little different. I wish, you know, and you go through all these body images, and finally, years later, you recognize if I'm not at peace inside, I am never going to be happy with my outside. But once I'm happy in the Lord with, you know, and at peace with my situation, then the outside really doesn't matter that much to me. But it, it takes a while to get there, right? And one of the things that, that over recent years has been eye-opening to me is, uh, is dealing with different people and coming to terms with, you know, how much things affect them that I'm, I'm looking at going, really? That's not even an issue. Don't raise your hands. How many gals went to buy a prom dress and it didn't fit quite right in the shoulders or some other portion or uh, uh, you know a bridesmaid thing and you're and you're going 
there must be something wrong with me. <laughs> Char said I could share this. Um, several times in our earlier years, she said, I, I don't like my shoulders. They're too broad. I just go, whatever. What do you want, attention? You know, it's like, okay, from my perspective, I've spent hundreds of hours in locker rooms, and the topic of gals came up regularly. I don't ever remember talking about a gal's shoulders. It's a non-issue. It just... And yet, you know, and years ago, at one point I'm going, I love your shoulders. What are you talking about? You know, it's, but for her, that was a big deal, right? She'd had an experience one time where, you know, heard this just didn't fit quite right. I mean, in the 80s, they used to add pads to make it look right, wider, right? I think I have the right decade. But that said, it's as if, you know, we get this impression of God must not love me as much because he gave me this nose that just, it's bountiful. (laughs) Or, you know, and each of us has areas like that where we just kind of, huh? That said, that's, a, that's an image issue. What I want to take you to with this is God establishes people rich and poor, all, all portions of the spectrum, and yet we tend regularly to look at rich as being blessed of God and poor as being in disfavor with him. And it was an issue right from early on. And now Jesus had watched people giving at the temple. Remember, he, he sees the widow and plops in a couple of coins and says, she's given more than anyone else because she gave all that she had. And, and so he saw it with a different perspective than what we tend to see things. I mean, most of us through our lives have always tried to go upward in regard to finance, Right? I would like to have a little more. How many of us have made intentional choices to go downward and say, I'll live with less. I'll do with less. I'll take a job that pays less. I will live this way because that's consistent with what I think God wants for me. It's not particularly common. Michael was sharing a story this morning of a couple that had gone to Ethiopia and moved into the garbage dump to be a witness in that setting. And their choice was to get rid of everything they had in this country and to move and locate themselves with a group of people. The reason you move to a garbage dump in a foreign land is because if you don't have any other source of income, at least you can go there and scavenge, right? And so there still needs to be ministry done in that setting. And so at times people make that choice, like you guys went to the Philippines. Very similar, right? But in the New Testament church, 
already this rich and poor were becoming issues. And obviously, when you come to the Lord and you start incorporating the disciplines, the eternal values and disciplines in your life, your life generally increases. And what and how you do things increases because you're not just wasting everything on the moment. So it's natural to be upward. But at the same time, you can't just pin all your hopes on that and just say, Obviously, God loves me or doesn't love me because this worked out financially. At the end of the first chapter, remember he made this comment, um, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, our Father, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And in that, the reasons that orphans and widows are mentioned is that these are people that can't defend themselves. They can't necessarily take care of themselves. And so there are others that need to step in and assist, particularly in in other cultures where they don't have any sense of government care. You can be destitute in a hurry. Um, when, when you look at this and then you realize the early church, the first fight they had or argument came over the care of widows, right? In Acts chapter 6, you have a group that's uh, going, uh, you're not looking after our mothers the same way you're looking after others. You know, another the the Hellenistic Jews were saying, or the Grecian Jews were saying to those that spoke Aramaic, the locals. I'll put it better that way. In Jerusalem, you know, the, you're saying you're not treating out of towners the same as you're treating the locals. And so the apostles are going, oh, what are we going to do? And they said, okay, let's appoint some people, call them servants, and they're going to look after these. They select, they select people with Grecian names. And so they select people that would have looked into and cared for everyone, not just the, the locals. They selected people with out-of-town names, so to speak. That's the best way I can describe it. So... In that, there was already stuff going on. Now, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he goes, okay, you know, I, I, there's, you put widows on a list, but let's, let's, let's look at this specifically. And he goes through a batch of details, and he goes, okay, um, if, if she's got family, they need to take care of her, Okay. They, they just, this shouldn't fall on the church. It should fall on family. Secondly, he goes, if they've lived righteously, then consider them because uh, you don't want to just, you know, if she's living just for pleasure, he says, she's dead already spiritually. Yeah, let's, let's take care of those that, that are, you know, behaving themselves, so to speak. Um, thirdly, if she's going to, she needs to be over 60. You know, so he's laying out, Guidelines, and that's not 
necessarily a, a specific rule list for us, but it, it has to do with their cultural sitting in that day saying, okay, these are true need items, or true need people, excuse me, and, and so let's take care of them. But this is, these are kind of the evaluators, and if she's lived righteously and, and, and done what, then of course we're going to do everything we can to sustain this person. So this, you know, this tension was felt in the church from early on. And James, whose letter has gone out to all the churches and who has this voice to speak to everyone, says, we've got to get this right. And he starts honing in on things and saying, it's, it's not rich or poor. You know, we, we need to care for all people. And just because someone's an orphan or widow doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. You know, why are we called to this except that God has compassion for them as well? That God loves them like he loves everyone else. We are called to carry the mindset of Christ. And so when it comes to looking at different people, groups, or segments, then there's that essential view that says, I need to see them as God sees them. And so then we start looking and saying, okay, they, they have crisis in their lives and, and there is this measure of being destitute, but they are loved by God and we better love them too. So that's, that's the direction he's going with this. And, and so now he's taking on this thing of uh, and moving into the, the next portion of this and he's going, it's real easy for us to look at a person that's, that has wealth about them and go, man, they're blessed to the Lord. Let's be friends. And look at those who don't have and say, well, <laughs> hopefully they'll get their act together and then, and then you know, we'll know that they love God and God loves them. That's the tension that I feel when I read this because it's, it's the kind of thing that, it's natural for us to, to want to move upward. It's natural for us to, to put ourselves around others that in our selfishness and our greed says there might be something coming my way if I have this friendship. And James is going after it and attacking it wholeheartedly. Show no partiality. Why? Because God doesn't show partiality. He loves all. A man's wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. You pay close attention to the one in fine clothing, and you don't pay the same attention to those in shabby clothing. He says, we have a problem here. It's not the mindset that God carries. And so the challenge for us is to say, what, how does God see this? And what should I be doing? He goes on and says, listen, God's chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So in the first chapter, he, he had already made a declaration. He says, be happy if you're poor. He says, be sad if you're rich because you're going to be humbled. You know, the wealth fades. So he, he's continuing to just go after this issue. He goes on and says, it's the rich who oppress you, drag you into court, 
blaspheme the honorable name of the Lord. Chapter 5, he says, it's the rich who have exploited you and the wages are crying out for the poor. So, I mean, he is, he is looking and saying, as a culture and a society, it's regular for people to build their wealth on their own greed, exploiting others. How does that have anything to do with God's heart and love? Or how can that be looked at as a portion of God's blessing? It's impossible. I mean, if you're misusing others to get to where you are, where was God in that process? It's not there, right? And so, you know, he's looking at the church as a whole and saying, let's not get preoccupied with this like the rest of society chasing these things. But let's acknowledge that God loves all. I've mentioned this numerous times, but it's powerful. A man named Larry Burkett had, had uh, made this observation. He says, God places people at every strata of society so he has a witness at all places. And so, you know, what, what his point then was is that each of us needs to come to terms with what is God calling us to. And what strata is he placing us in so that we can live at peace in that setting, whether rich or poor? It's not about having or not having, but it's saying, God, where do you place me? Where do you want this life? How do you want me to live? And, and, and what should I be doing in honor of you? He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes back to this overriding principle. That's part of what we are called to. Now, he also says, you know, if, if you fail in this area, it's like breaking the law. You, you, you've abandoned it all. You, you have, you've stepped away from, from the righteousness of God. And he does a couple things, and he says, mercy triumphs over. Show mercy. You, you want mercy from God? Show mercy. Now, in chapter 2, verse 14, you get the impression that he's starting off into something different, but actually he's still going after this same idea. And he goes, faith without works is dead. You can't talk it and then not do anything. You can't just look at it and say, well, yeah, that... That principle's true. But you have to take it that next step and let it affect your behavior. It has to have an application or it's just meaningless. He says, if your brother or sister are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, you say, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. What is that going to do? Nothing. He says, that's the tension when you look and see need and you don't respond. And you say, well, God bless you. So that's really cheap. One of the tensions that I feel when I read this passage is that I read it with a knowledge that not everyone who claims neediness is. 
And not everyone who wants me to hand them money is best served by me handing them money. Right? I mean, if, if somebody is just going to uh, continue on and say alcoholism or drug addiction, me handing them cash is, is possibly the worst thing I can do to assist them. What's crucial in this moment is to say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? And I can't just bag them in a, a place and say, um, well, this is who you are, this is your lot, and either I'm going to help you or I'm not. But it's essential for me to say, how does God see them and help me to see them in a similar fashion? Um, one of the biggest single factors of poverty in our society is single-parent homes. And some of the social engineering that we've done over the last 50 years in regard to government has really fostered that and increased it. So that even people groups that only had, say, 10 to 15% of, of single-parent families now run as high as 75%. And that is the unraveling of a culture and a system and everything else, and it, it's unsustainable. But that doesn't mean that everyone that's in that system has made those choices intentionally or is unredeemable. And we have to ask God, how do you want me to respond in this situation? We have a family situation where one of our extended family members was conceived by, by a gal who'd gone on a camping trip, hooked up, and all she knew was the first name of the guy. Now, did that kid ask to be born into this world? No. Has it affected his life? Absolutely. Does God love him any less than anyone else? I would say no. But how to affect that life is, is a, a significant issue in a positive manner that moves him in a direction that is beneficial for him. It's very, very complicated. What James is coming across with is that we tend to bag people and put them in slots, and, and often it's done in regard to what they have or how well they come in looking and seemingly have it together. He's going, it's much deeper than that. It's much more important than that. And we've got to ask the heart of God and say, what, what's your desire here? And we've got to be very, very careful not to mistreat people and read them wrong, so to speak. Faith by itself doesn't have works is dead. Somebody will say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you faith by my works. 
He goes on then to give four illustrations that say how important this is. He's going, you talk about belief, you know, the faith. He says, even the demons believe in God. How is that any kind of righteousness? Even the demons embrace that there's a God. I mean, how many times, I believe in God. <laughs> well, good, so do the demons. That's not enough to, to, to be the standard of our measure, right? Then he goes on, he gives a second illustration. He says, Abraham. Abraham, when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and he takes him to the very place of putting him to death, he's, and God calls him off and says no, but he says, God saw that as, as him taking action by what he had been called to do, and it was faith in, in the righteousness and caring of God that somehow this would be taken care of and provided for. And it, it was seen in God's eyes as righteousness, this act of faith. And it goes on to say that God called him a friend at that point. He goes on with a third illustration. He says, Rahab, prostitute in a foreign land, takes care of some spies, protects them, and sends them off and says, we know that your God is with you. And, and, you know, and they're going, that was a righteous act. And we could all look at the setting and say, it was all wrong. She, <laughs> Why would God choose her? Just to mess us up. <laughs> Just to, to throw out our preconceived ideas. But, you know, he says, the fact that she responded in faith, he says, that was, that was an establishment of, of, of a faith in God. There was a declaration through her action. In his fourth illustration, he says, the body apart from the spirit's dead. He says, you don't separate those two. So he says, if you have faith, it's got to come across in some kind of activity. It's, kind of, it's got to be seen by some kind of action. It's not just a head knowledge. It actually influences our lives. I think I'm going to leave it there for today. I, I'll give you one other illustration. When Jesus healed the ten lepers that were sitting beside the road, remember only one came back and gave thanks? And Jesus makes this declaration, okay, go, your faith has made you well. And I'm assuming that physically all ten got something. But I'm assuming that there was also spirit, mind, and other corrections, so to speak, that were, were taken care of in that moment. There was healing that went well beyond the physical. And the one that acknowledged God and recognized for what it was and gave thanks 
I believe that there was another dimension of healing that came even in that moment. And so, you know, when we, we look at passages like this, and even though we live in a rich culture and a rich nation, we want to dismiss it and say, oh, it, we're, we're well beyond that. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't affect our lives. And yet to, to note that this has been a part of Christian culture from the very beginning, so we do well to, to look at it carefully and say, who am I looking to gather around me? Who am I looking to associate with? And sometimes we're going to recognize a selfishness in our lives that just goes, I want to be with them because they're part of the beautiful people, or they're part of the wealthy, or they're part of the... And we start to separate for the false reasons. And what God calls us to is to say, see people with his eyes, and respond to them with his compassion. And know that just because there's variation, it doesn't mean that he loves them any less. If you can accept that, you can also accept then that the variations that are a part of your life are appropriate in the Lord as well and that he loves you deeply. If you can't see it in others, there's a good chance you're not seeing it in yourself as well. And the things that you are despondent about or you say, I can't change, I can't fix that, it's, it, yet it's here and I, you know, it makes me wonder. Well, the truth is God created you with that variation and he loves you deeply with the variation. If he were to treat all of us the same, we'd have had to have been born in one massive single birth, right? So the birth order wouldn't affect things? A litter, not a... in the same location, right? All with the same look. Same sex. Guess it wouldn't go more than a generation. You know, we, all these things that we separate, I mean, if, if God were to treat everybody the same, wouldn't that have to be the situation? Well, that'd be unfair to the mother for sure. Millions? <laughs> Billions? So we can embrace that kind of as a, a big picture thing. But are you ready to embrace that he loves you in your setting with your physical body, your mental abilities and inabilities, your emotional makeup, your family heritage, the community that you came from, the job that you have, all the things that we tend to separate and think, I, I'm not sure I see the love of God in this moment. 
And yet to embrace that in variation, his love is unchanging. And so for each of us, there's a measure of love that he has extended toward us because that's who he is. And then we look outward and say, he loves the rest of us as well. Praise the Lord. We look at your scripture and it speaks life to us. We pray that even in this passage, that the faith that we that we is engendered as we look at this would be moved into action, and that you would guide our decision making as a result of what we see. Amen. When we go through a passage like this, it's very important that we just don't associate it with a guilt response that says, oh, I've got to give something away. That's not, it's just not what he calls us to. The desire is to see people with his eyes. And if we see something that we can affect in a positive light and draw someone that much closer to the Lord, then we step forward and do that. That's what we're called to. But we don't let just their outward circumstance or situation dictate what our response will be, good or bad. It just, we say, God, what do you want? And how do, how do I do this? And so we ask, Lord, give us wisdom. And even now, bring to mind a name of someone that I might bless. And, and that might be even in just a measure of friendship hi how are you or it might be actually giving them something of substance and saying you're on my heart want to bless you uh, but it's that idea of, of giving the goodness uh, that's been a part of our lives into someone else's similar to the goodness of God blessing us so God move us that way and pray for his blessing on you remind you lots of food downstairs May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to see your heart in regard to another. Lord, I ask as they go into the community that you give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural, I ask. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. God bless you.